We're so grateful that we get to uh, join in the chorus of believers that sing praises to your name. Lord, we're thankful for churches all over this world. There are believers gathered in every corner of this planet. And that we get to be a part of that. That we get to be a part of the chorus of voices that sings to you. Lord, this evening I think of uh, Agape Baptist Church with Pastor Eric Wiseman. Lord, I'm thankful for that church and its long history here in Cheyenne, the various ministries they've had over the years. Uh, I'm thankful for Pastor Eric and the chance that I get to pray with him on a weekly basis, that I count him as uh, one of my friends in ministry. Lord, I would pray for him as a pastor, uh, that you would uh, continue to allow him to just preach your word and to let your word uh, do the ministry that it's designed to do in the lives of the people of that church. Uh, Father, I pray that he would continue to love the people of that church and that the people of that church would love him, and that they would care for him, and that they would listen to the things he's teaching, and that they would allow those things to change them. Uh, Father, then they would take those things, and they'd use them to proclaim your kingdom to the world around them. Father, I'm also thankful for the missions that we get to be involved in as a church, the ministries and the individuals we get to invest in. I'm thankful for the Gideons ministry and the investment we have there. Uh, for the number of men in our church that are involved in the Gideons, Lord. And uh, just would pray uh, for that ministry, that you'd continue to use them to evangelize the world through uh, preaching and teaching, but uh, mostly just by handing out scriptures. Lord, just so powerful for these guys to just go all over the planet and just hand out the Bible and then let the Bible do its job, that your word never returns void. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own story of salvation, and I would pray that it would continue. Lord, that you would raise up a new generation of young men and women who want to be involved in that ministry, that uh, have the same zeal for your word that those guys that have been doing it for years do, and that we would see that uh, ministry continue in that way. Father, we're thankful also for those who minister in our church. I think of Monica Mallon and the work that she's done in the media ministry over the years, uh, taking these sermons and putting them on CDs and making them available to people. Uh, We have no idea. Uh, what those CDs have done out in this world, but I can't imagine with the thousands of CDs we've sent out into the world that there aren't uh, some people's lives who are different because of that. So we're thankful for what would seem like a simple ministry, but still has the power of the word behind it. As we get into Matthew tonight, Lord, would you reveal to us who you are? Would you let us see very clearly uh, who it is you are that we can respond to you as the true God of the Bible? Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us, that we can see the things you've designed for us, that we can see from the examples in these passages just how it is you want us to live in response to the gospel. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we are. We're in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, I am again out of quarantine. So this is my like my fourth quarantine uh, since all of this started. And so I'm thankful for the weeks that you're patient and you have to watch me on video like you did last week, uh, but uh, glad to be back in person. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and Tim will hand one to you. Uh, but um, we're just going to keep working our way through this. If you don't know what we're doing uh, with our Sunday services, uh, it is my goal to work through the entire New Testament in five years. The pace to do that is one chapter a week. And then I throw an ish at the end of that because it's five years-ish. If you throw in Christmases and Easters, uh, it won't really work out perfectly with those things in there. But uh, that, that gives us a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, so we've just been this last couple of months working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. 
Uh, this book shows that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. And you'll see that all throughout this book. Uh, Jesus will do something and then he'll say, this was to fulfill. And so that's going to happen uh, over and over in this book. We've seen it a dozen or more times already. And we're going to continue to see that going forward. Uh, this chapter, a little bit different. Uh, I don't know that it has the word fulfill in this chapter. Uh, but what we will see is uh, this kind of transition in the ministry of Jesus. He's been more of a public ministry up to this point, And what we've seen is him before large crowds and preaching and doing all these amazing things. Uh, we're going to see less and less of the large crowds and more and more attention paid to the time that he's spending with his disciples. So this smaller group of people. And all of that's really going to be instigated by what's going to happen at the end of this passage where Jesus is going to tell his disciples that he's going to ultimately uh, pay the price for our sins, that he'll be killed uh, when he gets to Jerusalem. And so leading into that, he's going to spend more time, uh, at least in the scriptures, uh, teaching his disciples specific things that they need to know after he's gone on how it is that they're supposed to live. Now, in this passage, Jesus is going to ask a very important question in verse 15. He's going to ask, uh, who do you say that I am? Or as I have it here, who do you say that Jesus is? And so uh, I want us to kind of think through that question as Christians. It's easy for us to just say, oh, I know who Jesus is. But I really want you to kind of think through how you would answer that question. If somebody asked you, who is Jesus? What are the things that you would say about Jesus? Uh, I've been surprised over the years by kind of some of the things that I've heard uh, from people that I would see as strong Christians, generally speaking, uh, when I ask this question of them, their answers are surprisingly not as solid as I would like. Well, Jesus is just a great teacher. Well, he is a great teacher, but that's not what separates him from everyone else in the world. That's not what is unique about him. Well, he was a great prophet. Well, yes, he, he had great prophetic abilities. He did certainly prophesy things, uh, but there's more to that. that uh, we want to see in here a recognition by people that Jesus is Lord that he is the one that we've surrendered our life to. That's what we're really hoping to find with Jesus. That's what we're really hoping to find in him. So what's interesting in this then, as we look through this, uh, you're going to see different people kind of reacting to who Jesus is, trying to figure out just who Jesus is. We'll see the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of have this argument with Jesus. They're going to reveal uh, that for them, really, that Jesus is just an adversary. He's just somebody that they're arguing with. Uh, we're going to find out kind of how the disciples see Jesus. We're going to find out how the crowds see Jesus. Uh, but we want to really just hone in on that idea. And this question can be a pretty powerful question, by the way. It's something I've been able to use over the years uh, when I'm just having, uh, like, for instance, if I'm counseling somebody, and they can list out all of these difficulties and struggles that they're having in their life, and I can just ask this question, well, then who is Jesus to you? And once they get to the point where they can say to me, well, Jesus is the God of the universe. He's the creator of everything. He's, he's so powerful and he's so strong. And then I can say, now look at your problems and ask yourself this question. Is Jesus big enough, powerful enough, strong enough, mighty enough to help you deal with that circumstance? So I've been able to use it in that kind of a way. I also use it in evangelism. I'm not a great evangelist. I'm not one of those guys who stands out on the street corners and preaches and people just gather around me like, wow, this is amazing and great revivals happen everywhere I go. That's just not who I am. It's never been who I was. Uh, even when I do preach the gospel, uh, I feel like I have a very logical, clear, consistent view and way to present the gospel. But oftentimes when I preach the gospel, it's just kind of like, yeah, cool, man. And there's just not a whole lot of response. I'm just, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have that skill. 
Uh, but what I can do is use questions like this to quick, quickly get people into uh, a spiritual conversation. And so I can easily ask somebody, so who do you say Jesus is? It's a real simple question. And what's great about the question is everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to share their opinion. They think you need to know who they think he is. They just want to share what they think about him. It doesn't matter right or wrong at this point. What you're really doing is you're listening so you can diagnose who they are. Is this somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ or who has some weird or abhorrent view of who Jesus is? And it's from that that you can lead into greater discussion. Now, it's really cool that once they're done, sometimes they'll ask you, so who do you say Jesus is? That's kind of the perfect setup for me. It doesn't always work that way, but it's kind of a nice little setup if they ask back the question. But if they don't, once they're done, once they've had their say, I'll ask them something along the lines of, would you like to know who I think Jesus is? Or if I thought you were wrong, would you want to know? Or if you didn't have a view of Jesus that matched up with Scripture, would you like to know those things? But it just gives you kind of a quick way to get into that spiritual conversation, that evangelistic conversation. And then I'm a very polite evangelist uh, when, I, when I evangelize. If somebody says they're not interested in my view on Jesus, I'm kind of done with that conversation. And I'm like moved on to the Broncos. I move on to something else because they're, they're just not in a place where they want to hear these things. I'm not going to waste their time. I'm not going to waste my time uh, unless I feel strongly from the Holy Spirit where he's saying, no, you need to proclaim it in this circumstance. And that certainly happens sometimes. But in a general sense, a question like this can really open the door. Now, Jesus is going to use this question to diagnose how his disciples are starting to see him. And that's going to be important. Uh, but let's first look at how the Pharisees see Jesus. Before he ever asks the question, I'm asking the question. And can we discern from this passage how the Pharisees and Sadducees see Jesus, who they think he is? So in verse 1, it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So here come the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. These are the people that many of the Jews were looking to, to guide them into the things of God. And these guys are going to have this conversation with Jesus described here in verse one as a test of Jesus. In Mark chapter eight, it describes it as an argument with Jesus. This isn't just a calm, normal conversation. This is a confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders. Uh, they're going to ask him to show them a sign from heaven, but it's really all a test. And it's not the kind of test where they want to see if he is the Messiah. They're testing him to disprove that he's the Messiah. They have no hope or idea or desire to see him be the Messiah. They just don't believe this. As we've gone through this book already, we've seen that they've already determined in their hearts that they want to destroy Jesus. That's the word that was used in scripture, that they were plotting to destroy him. So as we get to this point, this test, is it's not a fair test. It's not really designed to do anything to prove that he's the Messiah. Now, the other reason the test is weird is it's unnecessary. Jesus has consistently been showing signs over and over and over that he is the Messiah. 
Over and over and over again, he's cast out demons. He's healed people that were sick. He's taken blind people and he's given them sight. People that can't walk, he's helped them walk. Uh, people with uh, crippled hands, he's made their hands stretch out that they could use their hands again. He's over and over and over again shown himself to be the Messiah, fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. The issue for these guys wasn't whether or not they wanted to know. They didn't care. They were doing anything they could do to make it so he wouldn't be seen as the Messiah. So this is a confrontation to him. Now, Jesus does what only Jesus can really do in this situation is he answers their question with another question. If anybody else does that, it's just flat out annoying. If I ask somebody a question and instead of them giving me an answer, they just give me another question, I'm instantly annoyed. And that comes from being a parent. Like as a parent, when I ask my kids a question, I expect an answer. I don't expect to go into a verbal game now. We have to kind of work through all of this stuff. So it's really annoying when your kids do it. It's really cool when Jesus does it. You know, if you were to go to your kids and say, hey, uh, did you clean their room? And they were to ask you back, I don't know, did you clean your room? Like, that's not a fun game to play, right? Did you brush your teeth? Dad, what is a toothbrush? Man, you are 14 years old. Why are you asking me what a toothbrush? You know what a toothbrush is. It's just annoying. But when Jesus does it, it's cool. I don't know why. It's just a big change here. So they've asked him this question, show us a sign. Jesus turns it right back on him. He says, look, you can notice the signs in the sky to decipher when the weather of changes. Why is it that you need one more sign or you can't discern from the signs that have already been shown you that the Messiah is standing right here. In other words, he says, all the signs are already out there. It's already laid out for you. You already should know the answer to this question. And Jesus can do miraculous thing after miraculous thing, but it's not going to change what's in their heart and what's in their mind. And as we'll see later, it's simply because at this point, God hasn't revealed to those guys who Jesus is. There's a supernatural revelation of God that has to happen. That hasn't happened at this point. They just can't see it. So they're arguing with Jesus over this stuff. And he ultimately tells them, uh, actually it calls them an evil and adulterous generation because they're seeking after a sign. And he's saying that this seeking of a sign that they're doing right here in the face of all these other signs shows that at the heart of who they are, they are evil. And he uses this word adulterous. It's used all throughout the Old Testament, uh, not specifically in the case of marriage, although that's certainly where the word comes, but he uses it to say religiously they're adulterous in that they don't have just God as God, that they have somehow pursued other gods. And I would say in this case, they've kind of pursued the God of themselves. They kind of see themselves as all the things that they should be seeing God as, and so much so that even as he stands right before them, they just can't see him. They just can't tell what's going on. So Jesus does tell them, I'm going to give you one more sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. He told them this exact same thing when they asked for a sign in Matthew chapter 12, that sign of Jonah in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and then was brought back. Jesus will be in the heart of the earth for three days and then he'll be resurrected. So the final sign that Jesus is going to show these guys is his resurrection. After he's put to death, he'll be resurrected from the dead three days later. And that for them should be the ultimate sign. And it is for many Christians, by the way, it's the ultimate sign. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the thing for us that kind of proves that he's different than so many of the other gods. There's something powerful in that, in that uh, uh, historical apologetic of who Jesus was. 
So the attention now is going to turn away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who see Jesus. If I were to ask them the question, who do you say that Jesus is? They would say he's an adversary. They've already said earlier in this book that, that he's doing the work of Beelzebub, of Satan, of the devil. They see him as an adversary. They see him as a foe, somebody they need to overcome, somebody they want to destroy. So I already recognize who they see Jesus as. And I just want to warn you just a little bit. Some of the people that we deal with see Jesus as an adversary and a foe. We don't always think about that. We always kind of assume people have good intentions and good hearts and good plans. But the reality is there are just people out there who want nothing to do with God. They actually fight the idea that God might exist because they want to be a God unto themselves. They want to do whatever they want, and they don't want uh, some sort of spiritual being kind of guiding and directing them and taking any of their liberty or free will away from them. That's how they would see it. And so they would see these things, even as we're showing them proofs of who God is, they would see that as something to fight about. And it's really interesting to see somebody who says that they're, they don't believe God exists, and at the same time, they're really mad at him. Have you ever seen that? Like, I hate God. He's not even real. Well, how can you hate him if he's not even real? That doesn't make sense to me. But you can just see kind of the anger welling up in them when they talk about this God that they don't even believe in. It's kind of a weird thing that happens, but the reality is they recognize God. But like Satan and like the demons, it causes them to shudder. It doesn't give them joy. They've separated themselves from him, and that's the way they want it. Well, now we turn our attention to the disciples. It's going to say here in verse 5, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understand that he understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus, although he's not speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees anymore, he's warning his disciples about them. Now, again, let's put this in proper context. Jesus knows and is about to reveal to his disciples that he's going to die. He already knows this. He's about to reveal this, that he's going to die. And when he dies, there'll be that missing element of who's going to teach these guys. And there's a danger that they might go back to the teachings that they had before, the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But Jesus is trying to warn them. And so he uses a phrase that seems a little weird maybe to us, but he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, he's using leaven there to describe how their teaching kind of spreads, just like yeast spreads throughout dough. But it's kind of an awkward situation because the disciples, as it tells us here in verse 5, when they left to go to the other side of the sea, they forgot to bring bread with them. And this isn't new for them. They forgot to bring bread in chapter 14. They forgot to bring bread in chapter 15. And now in chapter 16, once again, they've forgotten to bring bread. And so they hear leaven and they instantly think to themselves, he knows about the bread. 
we're in trouble again. He forgot to, we forgot to bring the bread. So they instantly kind of miss the point because they're all concerned about bread. And Jesus is, is bewildered by this. I love this, how he says this in verse 8. You men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember? And then he goes on to remind them of the time that he, in chapter 14, fed 5,000 men plus women and children by miraculously providing bread for them, the original wonder bread. Like, wow, look at this. How did he do that? I don't know. I wonder. The original bread, like this miraculous bread provided for them. And then in chapter 15, he does the same thing for 4,000 men plus women and children. He's just done this for them twice. And he's saying, you guys, how do you not understand what that was? Why on earth do you think I, who can create bread, magically delicious bread out of thin air, why would I be concerned if you forgot to bring bread again? They're just kind of missing the point. They missed the point of the miracles, and they can't even remember, which is odd that they can't remember this, because in each case, as he points out here, they were given baskets full of bread afterwards to carry with them. And yet they seem to kind of have forgotten how all of this works out. So here's the scenario now. In the first case, when they did the 5,000 people plus the women and children, the 5,000 men plus women and children, each one of them received their own basket, 12 baskets of bread left with them. They got their own parting gift. It was like a door prize for them. And every time they ate from that magical basket of bread, they're eating supernatural bread provided by God. And it should have for them sparked a memory of something they saw in the Old Testament. That the people of the nation of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness, just like in this scenario, and they needed to eat, and God miraculously provided from them bread from heaven, manna. What Jesus is showing these guys is that he's the same God. He's the God of the Old Testament that provided for them this bread in the wilderness, and he's continuing to do it even now. He's done it for them twice in the last two chapters, and they somehow just can't understand this. They're not able to wrap their mind around this. Again, for us, it's easy because we have the whole context, right? So I don't want to be too harsh on these guys. But at the same time, I would hope if I had seen somebody do something like this, I might take note of that and say, that's pretty impressive. I bet I'll remember that the next time it happens, and the next time I'm hungry. Those are the kinds of things you would think that they would remember, but they're just not able to grasp it at this point. They're missing the point. Maybe it's out of guilt because they forgot to bring bread again. Uh, but in general, Jesus is dealing with real-life people here. That's one of the things I love about the Bible, by the way. There's no glossing over this. The Bible doesn't make everybody into a hero. The Bible just flat out tells you what people are like, and you recognize these people. These are people you know. Like, I know people that would forget bread three times in a row because I'm that people. Like, I could go to the grocery store to get something, come home with 12 things that weren't on the list and forget the things on the list, have to go back and do it again and forget the bread. I could totally do that. It's something that I've been known to do. I can totally see that. That's just how people are. I love that about Scripture. These are just people. So Jesus is going to repeat for them, now that he's told them this isn't about bread, let me say it again. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's where we see in verse 12, then they understand. He wasn't saying beware of bread. He was saying to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees. Because much like leaven or yeast, it spreads throughout. Now, what specifically was he concerned about? Well, if you see the same story told in Luke chapter 12, he's talking about how their teaching was filled with hypocrisy. And he says there, beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the hypocrisy was really kind of the issue, that they were teaching things that they themselves did not do or believe. They were teaching to love God, but they themselves didn't really love God. And in fact, quite the opposite. They loved themselves, I believe, more than they loved God. And all of the things that they did ritualistically were to prove to everybody else, not to God, that they were godly people. That's what they were attempting to do. Their teaching was leading to people, uh, leading people to live in a ritualistic way that made it as if you don't need God. All you need is the rituals. There's a hypocrisy that they were living by. They were saying that they were spokesmen for God, but the truth is they weren't representing him well at all. So now then, it says in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So this is where the question is going to come, but he's going to ask this question twice. The first way he's going to ask it to his disciples is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so he's not even using them as an example or himself. He's not specifically saying me. He uses this term, Son of Man. Now he's applied that term to himself multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew, but he's referring back to the book of Daniel, the Messianic prophecies about the Son of Man coming. So he's referring back to that in the book of Daniel. But he's asking this question, who do people in general like, okay, disciples, you're out and about, you're around the crowd, you've seen all these people, you've heard what they say after I teach. Who do all the people say that I am? And they bring this long list. Some say he's John the Baptist. Remember we saw that a few weeks ago, Herod Antipas said that they thought Jesus was John the Baptist to come back from the dead to spook him, to haunt him. Some people say that he's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So this is the idea. The people had a better vision of who Jesus was than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They saw him as an adversary. But the people in general didn't see him in that way. They saw him as a prophet, which is a step closer. They're, they're, they're starting to recognize that he's actually speaking for God. In fact, the crowds were often amazed when he spoke because he taught with an authority that they hadn't recognized in other teachers before. It's not something they had seen. He spoke as one who had authority. So they're beginning to recognize more of who he is, but they don't yet recognize that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Messiah that they were waiting for. And that's where Jesus then turns to his disciples and say, okay, enough with who the crowd thinks I am. Who do you think I am? Who do you personally 
think I am? And that's the question that we started with. Who do you personally think that Jesus is? That's what it really is important. And this is one of the great moments for Simon Peter in all of Scripture. He's got a couple of them where you're just like, man, this guy is amazing. He also has some of the most boneheaded moments in all of the Scripture. And we're going to get to see one of those by the end of the chapter. So he's going to go from hero to zero pretty fast here, right? Uh, But right off the bat, Simon Peter answers and he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The first time, by the way, in the scriptures, any of the disciples said that. This is the first moment any of them verbalized that he was the Messiah that generations of Jews had been waiting for. Thousands of years, the Jews have been waiting for this Messiah, this promised one, all the way back to the promises, really, you could go to Adam and Eve, but you see it in Abraham and Isaac, you see it in King David's writings, you see this consistent promise of a future king, of a future anointed one sent by God, and for the first time, one of the disciples of Jesus says, that's who you are. Powerful moment. Peter nailed it right here. You are the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. You're the Christ that we've been waiting for and generations of my people have been waiting for. He then follows that up with this next statement. You're not just the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And I don't want to spend too much on this, but every time I see that Jesus is the son of God, I like to remind people that God's son could only be one thing, and that is God. In the same way, if I have a child, because I am by nature human, my child will be human. If a dog has a child by nature, that child will be a dog. And if God has a son by nature, that son is fully God. You see how that works. It's just one of the many ways in Scripture that we can see that Jesus is God. But beyond that, I would say this. Peter also nails it in the way he says that he's not just the son, but he's the son of the living God, contrasted to all the false gods that are out there. Some gods are dead just because they're fairy tales. They're just made-up stories. Those are dead gods. They're false gods. They're not real. They're dead. Some gods are dead because they're idols. Think of it in this way. Uh, If I were to take a piece of wood and I carve it into the shape of a god, and I put little eyeballs in there, and I put little arms and little feet and a little mouth, I carve those in there, does that make it live No, it's not alive. It's still just a hunk of wood that's been carved into something to look like something else. Now, the Old Testament loves to make fun of idols. If you go into the Psalms, if you go into some of the prophets, it has these great sections there where it just kind of harasses anybody who could possibly believe in idols. And it says, well, your God has eyes, but it can't see you. You've carved little feet into wood, So your God has feet, but it it can't go anywhere. You have to take your God and put it in your pocket and take it with you. These gods are dead gods. He's talking about the living God, the true God. And it's really the thing that separates out Jesus from other gods. You know, some people would say there are other gods, but all of those gods, all of those prophets of of old are gone. They're just not the same as Jesus Christ, who is the living God. God. There's a huge contrast there that we see in this. Now, Jesus recognizes this uh, as not being uh, a thing that that Simon is going to be able to say in his own character and his own strength. He recognizes. Listen to what he says here. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because 
Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The only way you got this right, Simon, is because my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Which is a powerful statement that we don't want to overlook. We sometimes see evangelism in a very transactional way. Uh, We would look at it this way. It's my job as the person who knows the gospel to preach the gospel rightly. It's the job of the hearer then to make a decision. And if they follow Jesus Christ, it's because they made a decision based on me giving them the right information. And if they don't choose Christ, it's either because they made a bad decision or I gave them the wrong information, right? Either I did a bad job preparing it or they just did a bad job choosing. And I'll often say this, I joke about this sometimes. I always say, you know, it's really not impressive that I became a Christian. All I did is I saw a good deal and I jumped on it. Oh, all my sins forgiven, eternal life, sign me up, sounds great. But there's something that also happens there that I think we sometimes just kind of gloss over and overlook, and that is that God reveals himself to those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And you're going to see that kind of peppered all throughout Scripture. There's a supernatural transaction that happens at the same time the physical transaction is happening. There's something supernatural happening in that moment where God reveals himself to people who hear the gospel. And in the moment that they hear the gospel and God reveals it to them, it becomes true to them. And they, like Simon Peter here, can say, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. It's important for me as the one who preaches the gospel sometimes to recognize And to trust in the reality that God has a role to play in this. That it's not all on me to save people's souls by preaching just good enough messages. And if I don't preach a good enough message, then obviously people won't get saved. That's not the way that works out. I preach the gospel, but it's the Spirit of God who connects the gospel to the heart of the person who ultimately becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the way that really works out. That's the thing we have to trust in. There's a supernatural revelation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, God supernaturally intervened in your life. He revealed himself to you personally, which means that the all-knowing God, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, cared enough about you personally that he revealed himself to you. That's why we worship him. That, to me, is a powerful understatement of of what's said here. But this is the idea that that God revealed himself. And now we get to kind of this confrontation, or not confrontation, this confusing statement. Jesus is going to say something here that has led to a lot of confusion throughout church history. But in hearing Simon make this particular uh, statement that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is going to respond by changing his name from Simon to Peter, and then he's going to Tell him that on this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to give him the keys of heaven. And then he's going to have this power of binding and loosening on heaven and earth. And it's led to a lot of uh, misunderstandings. Uh, This is the section that the Catholic Church will turn to when you ask them about why is it that you have a pope. They would point to this section right here. They would say, well, here's the deal. This was the very first pope, Peter. Peter was the very first pope, and all of our popes since then, we can trace back to being ascended from. In other words, Peter chose the next pope, who chose the next pope, who chose the next pope, and the church has always worked like that. 
Of course, there's a lot of stuff in history that says that's actually not true, that some of the people became popes just because they paid for the right to be pope. They just decided, I wanted to be pope. A lot of them were really corrupt and things like that. But beyond that, there's this recognition here that that's not even what's happening. This is not the popification of Peter. This isn't the, the poperiment of Peter. This isn't one of those things. Uh, this isn't where he became the pope. This is just Jesus connecting to the confession that Peter made that Jesus is the Christ. And he's saying on that confession, that's what I'm going to build my church on. The way that we can get to that, by the way, scripturally, where we see that this isn't just about Peter, is to look at Peter's other writings. So we have Peter here. Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter. Peter is a Greek word that means little rock. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And so that's where the confusion comes. Well, later, Peter will describe himself the same way he describes all believers as living stones. And then he will say that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, that he's the rock. So 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to study in that a little bit more, you can also see this in Ephesians chapter 2, just this concept that the rock is more associated with that confession of Christ as Lord. It's more associated with him than it is Peter, but it's because Peter's the first one here to really say it. Jesus is saying, did everybody see that? That's what it's going to be like for all time. It's going to be those who confess me as Christ. Those are the ones that I'm going to build my church with. So that's what's happening here. So when he talks about giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, recognize that's not exclusive. Peter's not the only one that was promised that in Scripture. If you look through the book of Revelation, you'll see that in there, that it was assigned to the churches there as well. As you go through the different churches, one of them they're told, hey, if you hold fast, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. It's that same kind of concept that we're seeing there. In addition to that, he talks about binding and loosening. The things you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. The things you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, that wasn't given just to Peter. We're going to see in chapter 18 that that was given to the whole church. In chapter 18, it talks about that concept of when somebody sins, you can confront them on their sin. And if they repent, if two or more of you agree with that on heaven, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a connection being made that the whole church, now because of their confession of faith in Jesus Christ, that the things we're praying for are heard in heaven. And as God agrees with those things, the things that we prayed for here on earth become a reality from heaven. That's the connection. But that's not just for Peter. That was for all those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't want to take that to the place that some people have, the name it and claim it people. Because I have the authority now to bind and loose, anything I say, God has to do. Now, they wouldn't say it like that, but if you listen to what they say, that's what they're saying. Well, obviously, if I was praying for healing of somebody and they didn't get healed, that's because I don't have enough faith. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There's always this connection that he's God. We're not turning him into a genie in a bottle where he has to do everything that we say. He's still God. But according to his will, when he agrees with us, or when we agree with him, really, is the way that should work, right? Well, we bring things before him, the things we're praying here appear in heaven. He hears them in heaven, and he responds. And sometimes his response is yes, and sometimes his response is no. That's just the way it works out. And by the way, it works out that way even for Peter. Remember, Peter was given a vision from God in the book of Acts, and the sheet comes down, and there's all these unclean foods on there. And God says, take, eat. 
And Peter says, no. And God says, hey, if I tell you it's clean, eat it. (laughs) Peter desired to not, but God said, do it. You see the connection there. It's not that Peter has some sort of supernatural power that nobody else has, that he can tell God what to do. We'll see that even more clearly here in the next section, because Peter is going to go from Pope here to dope in the next section. (laughs) Here's what happens. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to to Peter And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now look how fast things turned for Peter. The first pope, the rock on which I build my church, now becomes Satan and the stumbling block that stumbles Jesus Christ. Just like that. You see, Peter's no different than any of us. The reality is Peter has no ability to command the things of God by binding and loosening. So what's happened here, though, is that Peter is missing something really powerful that Jesus said. Peter hears Jesus say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed. And he's saying, I don't want you to be killed. I I don't want you to suffer. So Peter then, thinking he's defending Jesus, says, God forbid it. Lord. Now think about the strangeness of this situation. And it even says here, Peter began to rebuke Jesus. By the way, if you're in the position of rebuking Jesus, just don't. It just doesn't make any sense. But that's what Peter is doing. He's rebuking Jesus, it says in this moment. He says to him, God forbid it. Well, who's God? Jesus is God. He's fully God. God forbid it. But it's Jesus who just said it. And then he goes on to call Jesus Lord. God forbid it, Lord. Now, I don't know if you understand how the word Lord works, but Lord means the boss, the guy that's in charge, the one that you follow. So it's, it's, it's like going to your kids and saying, again, I want you to clean your room. And they say, no, because you're in charge. It doesn't make any sense. You can't both say you're the boss and say, but I'm not going to do what you're going to say. It doesn't line up. The problem that we have here with Peter is although in his mind, he mentally sees the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the son of the living God. He's not quite to the point where he's learned to live with that truth yet. He's still in this position where he mentally understands something, but he's not quite aligned his life to that truth yet. And it's going to take him some time, just like it kind of takes all of us a little bit of time to recognize what that means, to align ourselves with this truth. If Jesus Christ is Lord, we'll do the things he says. Elsewhere in the scripture, Jesus is going to say, you call me Lord, Lord, then why don't you do the things that I ask you to do? That's just a real simple concept. If he's Lord, we'll just do the things that he asks us to do. So Jesus rightly diagnoses this here in verse 23 You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. 
That's the problem that Peter was having in this moment. He was more concerned from a human perspective with human interests than he was on the plan of God. And in doing so, he missed something really powerful that Jesus said here. Jesus didn't just talk about suffering and dying. Lots of people suffer and die. In fact, all people suffer and die. Jesus said one more thing here that Peter really kind of missed that's really important. That Jesus was going to be raised on the third day. Jesus just prophesied his resurrection from the dead. And it's that resurrection that we as Christians hang our hat on. That makes the whole gospel message make sense to us. It's the power of the resurrection. The God who can resurrect Jesus Christ from the dead has promised also to raise us to eternal life. And Peter just missed this amazing statement that Jesus said because in his mind, he wasn't okay with Jesus dying even though Jesus is Lord and God. You see how he's kind of missed the boat here? Well, Jesus is going to take it from Peter now, and he's going to turn that same mentality back on all of us. He says it here in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, so this isn't just about Peter now, this is about anyone, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We'll talk a little bit more about that last statement next week. Uh, but this section here, where Jesus transitions from Peter not having his mind on the things of God, but instead on the things of man, he then applies to everyone, and he says this, if anyone, and I'm someone, I'm anyone, right? If anyone wishes to come after Jesus, he has to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. And they would have clearly heard that as saying, you have to deny your own life. You have to take up your cross, which means be willing to die in order to follow Jesus. And then he takes it a step further. It's not just about you yourself dying. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In other words, it's not just about dying yourself personally. It's about everything on planet earth compared to your own soul in the kingdom of God. Nothing on all of planet earth is worth it. And it puts us now in a, a place where we can kind of diagnose where our heart is. Uh, it's, uh, and thankfully, because I've taught through the scriptures a bunch of times, I've had the chance to go through this mentally in my mind of where I fall on these things. And so I just come up with this very simple equation for me. I think through all the stuff that I have and all the stuff that I want, and I ask myself this question, is there anything I have that I wouldn't give up for Jesus Christ? Is there anything that I want that I wouldn't abandon for Jesus Christ? And it's really kind of fascinating for me personally, there's really nothing on that list. I mean, I have a lot of stuff. I have some cool stuff. I have some stuff that's basically garbage, but I really like it. It's my stuff. But there's none of that stuff that to me is more important than my faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the problem with this statement. He says, the whole world. Well, it's not just stuff that I have in this world. This is the part that really gets me. 
It's the people in this world. That's where I start to have the struggle. That's where I start to have this, this issue in my heart. It's come up in various ways. I illustrated it one way first service, a second way second service. Um, but for me personally, uh, I'll just use the one that I use first service. How's that? Or should I come up with a new one? No, I'll just use the one I use first service. Let's recycle these things, right? Well, first service, as I was going through this, uh, I, was, I was thinking about this throughout the week and the way my brain works, although I've studied it at a certain time, it just kind of sticks in my head the rest of the week. So here's what happened. I'm driving in my car. I've got my wife. I've got my son. My daughter's not there. She's married. She's doing her own thing, right? But I'm in my car with my wife and my son. I'm supposed to be paying attention to the road and everything that's going on in me. But my brain is thinking about this question. Is there anything on this earth or anyone that I love more than Jesus Christ? And so my brain has for years come back to this same scenario. What if somebody put a gun to the head of somebody that I love and said, Sean, deny Jesus Christ or I will kill them. See, if they say they're going to kill me, I'm like, boom, martyr. They sing songs about me. This is awesome. I instantly am transported to heaven. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy. It doesn't bother me that much. I say now because nobody's ever pointed a gun at my head and asked me that question. But I at least feel like I've prepared myself for that in my mind. This is the one that hurts, though. This is the one where I would question myself, and I don't know how you guys think, but my 18-year-old son and my 20-year-old daughter in that moment suddenly are six years old, and their eyes are this big looking at daddy. Now I have to ask myself this question. In that circumstance... Would I save their life and surrender my soul? Would I deny Jesus Christ in order to save their life? Now the diagnostic becomes clear to me that there might be some people that I love more than I love God. There's things for me to kind of work through. Now, I've logically worked my way through that. If you want to know how I've done that, I'll tell you sometime. But I kind of logicked my way through how I would respond to that. I'll tell you uh, that none of it's pretty, but it's just kind of Sean logically thinking his way through it, how I'd come to a conclusion. But man, how do you respond to that? Well, how you respond to that reveals who you say Jesus is. Is he really your Lord? And are you really willing to deny everything in this world for him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would thank you for your word. Lord, I'm fascinated how I can go through sections of scripture that I've seen probably hundreds of times in my life and every time be brought to a place of decision. that each time the word comes with a different weight and a different angle and a different intention to do work in my heart. Father, I pray that I wouldn't be lazy about dealing with these things. I pray that for all of us, that these types of questions would weigh on our hearts beyond this moment of preaching and throughout the next week or weeks or months or years, we would contemplate these things. We begin to examine in, in a real way the truth of what's most important to us. And we would slowly and systematically remove those things or realign our hearts with the reality that we are to deny everything to keep you. 
Lord, help us to see what that looks like in our life. I know it means in a moment we might have to make a decision. I also know that it doesn't mean we have to get rid of our families and get rid of our stuff unless you've specifically asked us to do something along those lines. So unless we've been specifically put in that circumstance. But in the meantime, Lord, do the work on our heart so that if we're called to those things, we're ready to respond in faith. Lord, help us to love you more than anything else and more than anyone else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.